Um, anyhow, that to be said, uh, Hannah and Brandon, get your booties up here. <clears throat> so uh, Brandon has preached before, and Apprentice Sunday, we like, like it to be people doing it for the first time, but there's also people who are growing in their gift and all that. But Brandon, you've preached a couple times, but Hannah is preaching for the first time tonight. And I know that Brandon and I agree on something, because when they were first scheduled together, Brandon said, Hannah could just preach, and I could not. And I was like, fair. But I actually think Hannah is going to be one of the most amazing preachers at Genesis. I really, truly believe that. Will tonight be her best message? Doesn't matter. Literally doesn't matter. Tonight is about supporting them and fanning to flame the gift that God is starting right here, right now. And so we have your all's commitment that you will encourage them and love them no matter what happens tonight, right? I have read through their sermons, so the theology's good. We don't have to worry about that. But if Hannah just loses it, goes straight leg, faints, and we don't know what to do for the rest of the night, everyone will cheer, right? <laughs> And someone will call 911. Anyhow, I, I just, I, whatever, I'm making light of it. But I really, really do love both of these people. I think they both have a contemplative and intellectual gift with a very pastoral heart. So both of them are very content uh, and familiar with the presence of God. And wanting more than anything tonight, more than fancy words for us to become aware of the presence of God through the Holy Spirit with us tonight. That's goal number one for both of them, but they're also like 10x smarter than all of us. And their bookshelves, and I swear, go follow her on Goodreads. You won't believe the numbers. Um, they are smart people, and I just think there is such a beautiful teaching gift that comes with the both, not just like head brains and good ideas. That doesn't last very long. That doesn't change people. Knowledge is good, but it's not what changes us. But the Spirit of God just meeting us tonight and encountering us and moving our hearts, that's what changes us. And I think that both of them have an incredible gift of helping us become more aware of Him tonight, all right? So how's it going to work? They're going to preach for like 15 minutes apiece. And that might be the first time you've been a part of something like that. But they're going to, Brandon's going to start us and set the evening up, and then Hannah is going to hit the Grand Slam. I mean, that's at least what we all believe. So let's pray for them. Jesus, we love you, and we love that partnership with you, that um, leading alongside of you does not have an uh, unmeetable list of guidelines. It doesn't have uh, an unmeetable uh, standard or, or quality that we are qualified for without you. And so tonight, uh, whether it's first-time preachers or lifetime preachers, we step in with the same posture of humility to say, Lord, we don't just want to preach empty words. We don't want that. We want your spirit here. And so through Brandon's words, through Hannah's words, and especially through the heart and the preparation that's gone before them, would your spirit speak beyond their words? Would it speak uh, individually to us that each of us actually come in with things that just need to be healed by the good news of Jesus? 
but also corporately, would it build up Genesis as a church that reflects you in Costa Mesa and anywhere we go as it is in heaven? We love you so much, Jesus. Amen. Okay. There, this is on, I think, right? Am I good, Ezra? Perfect. Awesome. So before I actually start, I would like to begin and take a moment and acknowledge God's presence and honor him here before I get to saying anything. So if you all, uh, if you all could, um, just close your eyes. Um, let's just pause. Take a deep breath. Jesus, we recognize that you are here with us right now. You are present with us in the room. You are always with us, Lord. You are, as your saints of old said, closer than our very breath. Thank you, God, for staying with us, for remaining with us. You promise to never leave us or forsake us, and you have proven yourself to be trustworthy in this. Thank you, God, for caring so deeply for us. The burdens that we carry um, throughout the whole day and the pains that we feel are all before you, and you've seen all of them, and you care deeply about each of them, God. Now I ask for grace as I, um, as I teach your people, Lord. May my words point to you, Jesus, your love, and your kindness, and your gentleness, and your nearness. Amen. And thank you. So as Ty said, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the leaders here at Genesis. If I haven't got to meet you yet, um, I'd love to. Come talk to me afterward. I love meeting people and grabbing coffee and doing that kind of thing, especially when I'm up at the front, front-facing and preaching. Um, it matters a lot to me that I know who I'm talking to, that it's not just like a general mass of people, but I actually want to know you guys. The scripture I'll be reading out of today um, is from Philippians chapter four, starting in verse four. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I believe we'll have it on the screen. All right, let's, you guys ready? Cool. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. There are a lot of passages in the New Testament, particularly in St. Paul's letters, that have been misinterpreted or misused in ways that can actually be kind of harmful. This is one of those passages. This is probably towards the top of that list, if you're, if you're looking at it. This is towards the top of that list of potentially hurtful passages. I've heard this preached in ways that are insensitive or dismissive of anxiety, and I've left those teachings feeling more anxious about my life 
not less. So there is, there is something missed there. And some in this room might actually hear that we're teaching on this verse and begin to feel a sense of shame or guilt or hurt associated with it, um, be it from past teachings or from pastors who honestly did not care for you as they should have. Um, you may have in the past gone to your leaders and pastors for help and guidance when you're feeling anxious and been like prescribed this passage. Go and read this and this should help. I'm really sorry if that's your story. Um, I came into this knowing that that was going to be present in this room. I'm going to do my best to keep you guys safe as I teach this passage. When we talk about anxiety, the range is really wide from generalized anxiety that all of us feel because we're human beings. You know, when we're going for a job interview or on a first date or going into a hard conversation with parents, whatever it is, there's a lot of things that could, could make us feel worried or anxious. All the way to anxiety disorders um, when the brain's chemistry has been compromised as a result of some sort of trauma or something at a different developmental stage um, or a, a, like a, a genetic predisposition. I want to be careful as I approach this um, not to speak uh, about these as if they're both the same thing. There's, there's a difference here. For the latter, there are therapists and medications and treatments to help, all of which are good and often necessary, and I thank God for all of them. I do believe that Paul's words can be a comfort in both cases, not a cure for all anxiety, but a comfort in the midst of it. All of us are anxious in some way, to varying degrees, be it from an imbalance, like I said, or disorders, or because the future is uncertain, and this world can be scary, and we have all just gone through a global pandemic and faced isolation and political unrest and social uprisings, and none of us have been here before. It makes all the sense in the world that we would feel anxious like we do. I actually saw on Instagram earlier this week as I was preparing for today that apparently even Charlie Brown suffers from what is likely some kind of generalized anxiety disorder, which, which I find both comforting and also alarming. <laughs> but um, that is way, I'm, I am not a, a psychologist or therapist, it's way above my, my pay grade to psychoanalyze Charlie Brown. Um, I'm going to leave that to Caleb Ashurst in the back. So, What I want to say before I go any farther is you do not need to feel any guilt or shame for your anxiety. Whatever you've been told in this room, whatever you've been told in the past, you are not a bad disciple of Jesus. You do not lack faith. You have not let him down for struggling in anxiety. Uh, nothing like that of the sort. You do not have to hide. You certainly don't have to pretend Anything like that that has been spoken over you within this room, I want to, in the name of Jesus, say that is not true about you, okay? So with that said, at the same time, 
when we read this passage, we are told, do not be anxious about anything, right? So what are we supposed to do with that? There's clearly something here that Paul is trying to set right. He is offering to those of us who are anxious, who are afraid, something else. He's saying that there is hope and comfort and peace, a peace that he says surpasses all of our understanding, all of our understanding and what we can see. But how do we even begin to talk about that in the midst of what is likely the most anxious society in the history of the world? What sort of comfort, I'm gonna spill my water right here, sorry. What sort of comfort could we hope for, like hope to find in the midst of this anxiety? I asked um, a few of my friends and mentors this question earlier this week in preparation, and this is what they had to say. Uh, My friend Josh Harrison said, I suppose the greatest comfort in anxiety is knowing that I'm not alone. From a community perspective, for sure, but most importantly, knowing that God is with me in the anxiety. He doesn't always give us the answers to the things we're anxious about or even a solution to our anxiety. He gives us a relationship with him. And I asked Joe Snyder, who I think some of you guys in the room probably know, um, he said, God's presence is my greatest comfort in anxiety. I'll be with you wherever you go. I'll always be with you. He went on to quote Psalm 37, which I think we have, which says, I was young and now am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken. Friends, this is all in line with our passage today. Um, If we could go back to that. Um, Right there in verse five, right in the middle, it says the Lord is near. Within the Bible that you have in your hands right now, there are 365 verses that say, do not be afraid. And yes, that's, that's right. There's, there's one for every day of the year, which is a cheesy pastor thing to, to say, but it's, it's worth noting. I think it's significant. There's actually probably more than that if you change the wording a bit, but 365 and in almost every one of them, and I have read all of them, it is said, do not be afraid, followed by, I will be with you or I am always with you, or I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. We're not told in scripture simply to stop being afraid. I've been told that by a lot of people and pastors and stuff, that's never what the scriptures say. Um, We're not even told that God will fix our, our situations or problems that are causing us to feel anxious like we do. Um, We're told, you do not need to be afraid, I will be with you. Whatever your circumstances are, I will be there in it with you. The psalmist writes in Psalm 46, if we can pull that up. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, since he's ever-present, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake from their surging, God is ever present in spite of the mountains falling into the sea around you. Again, in Psalm 23, which I'm sure probably a lot of people in this room know, or maybe I've set to memory, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? 
for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is, as um, a friend of mine worded it, a, a situationally independent peace, a peace that surpasses all the things around us, all of our understanding. Meaning when your surroundings and circumstances do not feel safe, they're changing, you have someone who is in the midst of that. He's not going anywhere. He's promised to stay with you no matter what happens to you, no matter what you do or how you fall, he's staying. Now, kind of landing that a bit, putting it into, into the ground, Paul tells us that this peace comes through prayer and supplication. Supplication just means asking. Um, there's a translation that I read that says, pray about everything and you will experience the peace of God. Which is interesting to me because God already knows our hearts and our minds. Um, the psalmist writes, I don't think I have it up here, but before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. So we're not telling him anything that he doesn't already know when we pray. Yet we're told to tell him everything that's in our hearts. Um, so what would be the point of telling him something that he already knows? There's a few things, but I think my best shot at this would be maybe it's the peace is not in his answer and him changing our uh, solution, uh, giving a solution to our problems. I think that the peace is in him. When I, in prayer, have been vulnerable before God and did not try to shut down my feelings or pretend that they're not there, but rather I went to him and I named the big scary things that I'm feeling, I have not been met with shame or guilt. I have been met with his love and his kindness and his gentleness. And that is where I have found the peace that does not make sense that Paul is talking about. It is in a relationship with a loving God who does not recoil or run away when I show him my brokenness. So with that, um, you might say, that feels scary, or I don't know how to do that. Um, I'm not going to pretend it can be. Um, it is at first. I think it's it, like it is in any relationship when you're, you're vulnerable and open with somebody. It's, it's scary for the first time. But we learn to trust God in the same way that we build trust in any other meaningful relationship in our life. That is gradually through time, honesty, and vulnerability. And when we allow ourselves to be fully seen by him, you may find that, in fa uh, that he is, in fact, kind and gentle and loving, just like he says he is. And maybe those places where trust feels hard, um, I'm in the midst of some of that right now, where trust feels hard become the place where you actually meet him in the deepest way. And maybe the peace of God, which surpasses all of your understanding, will begin to guard your heart, and your mind in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen.
I'll leave you guys with this. Um, K.J. Ramsey once said, may the wilderness of your wounds and weariness become the place where you hear that you are already and always held. Thank you. Anna, are you ready? I um, I have it on Google Docs, and um, it's just called Sermon, because it's like the only one I've ever done. So <laughs> just pulled it up. We're good. Okay. Um, thank you, Brandon, wherever you went. That was beautiful. Um, okay. Yeah, so my name is Hannah. I have been at Genesis for a couple years, and I'm excited to be here in a new way today. Um, Brandon and I got shuffled around in the schedule a little bit, so we ended up having like months to prepare for this, which is a blessing and a curse when you've never done this before, because like we had tons of time to prepare, and also it's just kind of been like looming, like this is going to happen later. Um, but I, I'm really saying that to just say. Honestly, this kind of feels like reading you my journal. Um, This is really just my processing of these verses over the last three months. I've had a lot of time to stew and process and um, really experience my life through the lens of these verses. I've never really done a long-term meditation like that. So anyways, feels just like simple and honest to share that with you, that like um, this is just what these have meant to me. Um, And yeah, I'm excited. So before we dive in, I am going to read the verses, but That's going to be diving in. Before we do that, um, I want to kick us off with a little recap of the letter up to this point, just so we kind of know where we're situated. Um, You may have been in and out this summer as much as I have been, and um, even if you haven't, it's been several weeks since we've heard from the beginning of the letter, and um, these really kind of are the culminating verses of the whole thing. This is practical application. Paul's going to shift into saying thank you and then goodbye, Um, but he's leaving us with a set of tools before he does that. And so um, I'm going to give you a quick 30-second recap. goes like this. Paul has basically been presenting us with this beautiful letter of encouragement. Um, it's what it looks like to walk with Jesus. The kingdom is coming. Paul is in prison currently um, for the kingdom, but that's kind of fake news or like not the most important thing that's happening. Um, Stu spoke on that, that the Romans tried to silence Paul, but they gave him a platform. Um, Paul says, you also, like me, will experience external adversity. Um, So you can't do this alone. Do it together. You need to be united together. In order to be united, you need humility. In order to be humble, you need to learn that from a rabbi. That's Jesus. Take on this character that Jesus has. And then there's, like, all through the letter, this cast of qualities that Paul is asking the Philippians to flee from in favor of their holier counterparts. Um, So that's discord to unity, pride to humility, gluttony to discipline, fear to peace. Um, And this is what it is to walk with Jesus. All the other things you thought were the best things about life, oh, Hebrew of Hebrews, insert value here, Um, they're blown out of the water compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. So that's where we're picking up. Finally, that's the first word of my passage. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, 
whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Um, I would like us to understand this section of the letter, mine and Brandon's together, really, um, as an answer to the question of how a person can practically keep up all the things they've been asked to do in the rest of the letter in a place as disorienting as earth after Eden, the world after everything has broken down. Um, Our passage today is sandwiched both before and after by Paul saying, join together in following my example. He's like, do as I do. And then he's answering everyone's unspoken question of how to do that with a couple of practical tools, how to handle fear, or at the very least, how to pursue peace. And then this. And I think where we split the verses up in this section feels natural, but I also want to be careful that it doesn't sound now like a competing narrative. Brandon has just done a great job of taking us through really the practical reality of fear and um, the idea that God is not asking us to not fear, but to approach him with honesty and in prayer with vulnerability. Um, And then Paul's like, finally, just think about something else. And when I read that, I was like, this is going to be weird. Um, But I I don't actually think that's what Paul's saying. Um, I, yeah, I think he's already given us the path to pursue peace. That's prayer. Um, It's the truth of God. But when you have subdued fear, then you can look up. I read an article in preparation for today written by an Israeli professor named Daniel Bartal from Tel Aviv University. The article is called, Why Does Fear Override Hope in Societies Engulfed by Intractable Conflict as it does in the Israeli society? Intractable meaning unmanageable or out of control. I Google that. Um, And this man hypothesizes that hope is a foundational tool in engaging in a peace process between conflicting people groups, um, people groups inundated by conflict. But the emotional orientation of fear, which is created by conflict, itself diminishes the human capacity for hope. Um, So that's intuitive, right? Like if you're really fearful of a group of people, it's going to prevent you from being able to hope for peace. Okay, it's going to, you're going to struggle to believe that reconciliation is possible. You remove the fear, you get peace, and that's fertile ground for hope. Peace without hope is maybe complacency. Um, Hope is the movement, the rebirth, and the potential of what you do from a position of peace. And now that there's room for hope, you have to cultivate it. This is the equation I think that we're being given at the end of this letter. If you want to live a kingdom life, right, all those things that I listed before, um, your fear must decrease and your hope must increase. And the, the, uh, the question that Paul is answering is how? In the same article, this is going to be kind of dense, um, but just stick with me. We'll talk about it. Um, In the same article, the professor defines the two subjects of fear and hope. He says, fear is an automatic emotion grounded in the perceived present and often based on the memorized past, which is processed unconsciously, that leads to freezing of beliefs, conservatism, and sometimes preemptive aggression. Hope, in contrast, involves mostly cognitive activity, which requires the search for new ideas, and thus is based on creativity and flexibility. So that's complicated, but the main idea is fear is automatic. It is an unconscious emotional response to the experience of life. It exists without permission in the same way that your other emotions do, but, it, but it, there is a, a measure of regulation to fear, right? That's why we don't 
we recognize that it's a problem to have too much fear. We're like, something's off. Um, yeah, your, your emotions, all of your emotions are true to you, but they don't always tell you the truth. They're grounded in your perceived reality, which is not always the same thing as actual reality. And thus is the role of prayer, right? For recalibration and unity with God. You speak your truth, he speaks his truth back. But conversely, hope is the opposite of automatic. It is very much manual. It relies on imagination and creativity. It must be fed and cultivated. It is hard to maintain because it is very quickly squashed by your perceived present and your memorized past. It requires the strategic use of your mind. And now, maybe, you can see where we're going. When Paul tells the Philippians to think about the true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy things of the world, it is not the request of a naive optimist asking you to move on from your suffering or suppress your emotions or move on from reality in general just to feel better. This is Paul recognizing that if we want to believe in the plans of God, but we live in the world as it is now, we are held in a state of suspense. We don't know what's going to happen next, theoretically. And the question of where you place your mind is actually a question of stewardship. Paul is giving a strategy for stewardship for the stewardship of hope to those of us who find ourselves inundated with intractable conflict. We who suffer the violence of the fall on our bodies and our souls every day must remind ourselves of the world that we are walking towards. And by the fall, I just mean the breaking of the world when everything went wrong. Um, and the world we're walking towards, one without fear, death, grief, crying, pain. I, um, I watched the new Guardian of the Galaxy movie when I first got assigned this sermon in May. Um, and this is not technically a spoiler, just a setup, um, but it also came out four months ago, so I feel like it's fine. Um, anyways, it opens on Rocket. If you're not super familiar with Guardians of the Galaxy, he's like this little space cadet raccoon guy, um, and it's him as a baby. He was born into this lab, and he's being experimented on by a scientist who wants to create a perfect world and then perfect species of animals to live in this world. But the scientist is like, super gross. You can tell from the very beginning that something's off and the animals are like a rabbit with a mechanical jaw and an otter with skinny metal arms and then Rocket who has these like metal patches on him. And anyways, they end up in this cage together and they take care of each other and they're playing and they're crying and they're dreaming and day in and day out, they are literally being ripped apart and sewn back together, but they believe that they are being made perfect and they have this vision of a perfect coming world in front of them. So they're taking turns like all through like the beginning of the movie, reminding each other of what's coming. And one of the ways that they do that is by talking about the sky, um, which like, to be honest, only one of them really has seen before anyways, but this is something they tell each other over and over again. Yes, things are hard. Yes, our bodies hurt. But someday we'll see the sky. It's blue and it's forever. It's blue and it's forever. That's like their mantra. And it's super tragic because you know even while you're watching this scene that the animals have been misled. But the point is this. The characters themselves are sustained in a place of great pain by their dream of something beautiful and eternal. And I think there's something inside of us that wants to hold on to the idea that beauty itself is what goes on forever, that the ugly things of our world are only temporary. In a world that does not tell us the truth of our present situation, that Jesus has died and is risen, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, that death itself has been swallowed up, when we can't see those things in a world inundated by fear, we are responsible for telling ourselves the truth. <sighs> in fact... 
It is Jesus himself who offers us this hope in the very first place. It is his resurrection that is proof that all the evil, sad, ugly things in the world will come untrue, that there's a garden that he's growing and it really will bloom, that death is not the most true state of the world, that we are all moving towards something beautiful and eternal that we see glimpses of all the time. We are being led into an inheritance of no more mourning or crying or death, a land where God himself dwells with us, where the feelings of loneliness and lack will be a memory. But Jesus's life, death, and resurrection is not just God's way of showing us the way that he will remake the world. It is also an invitation to the personal remaking of us now. And now I'm gonna take a drink of water. (laughs) Just sit with that. Okay, the remaking of us now. (laughs) Um, When Jesus dies on the cross, there is a lot happening. Um, Christians debate each other on what exactly is happening in this moment. My home group debates each other on what exactly is happening in this moment. Um, You may have heard words before like sacrifice and propitiation and reconciliation and redemption, Christian salvation in general at large, and what that means is really layered and sometimes difficult to understand. But at least one layer of the gospel, and the the gospel being the good news of Jesus, is this, that we are born into a world that broke a long time ago. Now it is violent, and violence breeds fear. This legacy of terror is one that none of us can escape. Um, We all bear the wounds of a world gone wrong. We are products of our pain more often than we are masters of it. Um, You and I, all of us, have been forged by trauma, whether we are aware of it or not, whether we meant to be or not, whether we think we are or not. Um, Paul writes in another letter to Titus, his mentee, that we lived being hated and hating one another. This is what it is to be in the flesh, to perpetuate the cycle of tearing each other apart. This and this, this cycle, this, this violence, is the world that Jesus enters into. Beautiful, loving, open Jesus invites you in his kindness to be created by life, to become more than what you have suffered. In a story recorded in the Gospel of John, Jesus has a conversation with a teacher of the law named Nicodemus. Nicodemus asks Jesus what he must do to be saved. Jesus says he has to be born again, and Nicodemus is like, what? How can someone do that if they're old? And Jesus is like, you have to be born of water and spirit. You may have heard the term born-again Christian and thought it was weird. comes from this story. Nicodemus also thought it was weird. Um, But spirit and water and birth in general is new life imagery. That's everything that flesh is not. Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he's been born into one birthright, Okay, the one of the world, one marked by pain and preserved by fear. And now Nicodemus must be born into another birthright. He must become the product of something totally other than his wounds. He must be formed by and bear the markings of a future hope, a world that is coming and is as beautiful as the God who rules it. We have been freed from fear so that our brains can do the cognitive and imaginative work of participating in the remaking of the world. And that is the good news of Jesus. That's the invitation. Um, So what does that look like in practice? Um, What does it look like to set your mind on beauty and justice and love, et cetera, to feed your hope? Um, This is application. We are going to fly through these. Uh, It's a list because you don't preach a sermon without a list of some kind. Um, 
But I also want to just throw out a disclaimer that this is, like, I don't think there's a way to have a comprehensive list of this. Um, I feel like it's kind of open to interpretation. My ideas are objectively good, but, like, you might add to them. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like I'll tell you what came to my mind. You write down some things that have come to yours. It's like, a, it's a collaborative process, but the idea is, like, how do you feed your hope? Like, how do you sustain this sense of like something else is coming? Because we've been promised that, but we don't see it all the time. So my first one, point number one, is to look at Jesus. It's a good one. Remind yourself of the location of God in the room right now. Remind yourself that God also exists in a world at war. He's not a dispassionate bystander. He is also deeply grieving all the ways his perfect world went wrong. I think see yourself in communion with the sufferings of Christ so you do not begin to believe that he's not good enough or powerful enough to love. He is. He's experiencing all the same feelings actively with us right now. Um, I think remind yourself of all the promises that he's kept. There's lots of them. Tell his stories. And then treasure the unfulfilled promises in your heart, like Mary. He's never doing nothing. If he has promised to redeem us, if he has promised to bring us into a perfect future world with no crying and no pain, he will do it. And there are glimpses of it around us all the time. So that's number one. Um, number two is consume art with a redemption arc. That's stories, stories, stories. Um, all the forms that stories take. I'm talking about books and music and poetry and movies and paintings. It's really powerful. Even if a story isn't real, it can be true. Stories supersede your ability to over-intellectualize what you're um, thinking about, and um, we have a tendency as humans to compartmentalize, stories just go right through that. Like, it just gets at your heart. It teaches you how to believe. Um, if hope itself is based in creativity, then you have to feed your imagination. And I think you can start with Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, on the flip side, this kind of goes without saying, don't consume art without a redemption arc. Evil has a true role in every story. That's what makes it a story, but gratuity for gratuity for gratuity's sake, will teach you a wrong paradigm of belief. Um, you don't want it. I could list lots of both socially and unaccept socially acceptable and unacceptable ways to consume empty media, but I do think that's part of our individual wrestle with salvation. It's work it out. Our, neur our neurology is really malleable. Your hope can wither just as easily as it can grow. So I think just pay attention to that. Consume stories, but consume stories that are good and beautiful and remind us that something good and beautiful is coming. And then the last thing I will say is community. In this journey of life, it really is all about the friends you make along the way. Um, you cannot be expected to press into hope alone, but only you choose your level of vulnerability. If you're honest about your unmet expectations and where you're at, Rocket and his friends could only remember that something existed outside of their little laboratory cell because they kept telling each other. Um, full circle. Philippians itself is pretty much all about unity. Hannah and Sam told us that. So now we're in unity, even in hope. Um, I just think get engaged, like involved. Be a part of the imperfect ragtag team of people who think that something good and beautiful is coming. I do think that we will carry each other into the world that is coming. So, um, so yeah, I would love to go ahead and pray, and then we'll transition into communion. Yeah, God, I just thank you so much for um, who you are, that you are good, 
and um, trustworthy and active and empathetic, um, that you are a God full of emotions. Um, yeah, that even you before the cross asked that the cup would pass before you, that you are a God who experienced anxiety and fear and um, unknown even in the, in the uh, idea of Christian certainty. You who knew the Father so intimately even struggled yourself with pressing on one foot after the other. And so um, we just thank you for, uh, yeah, your character, the character that comes down to be with us, to experience that with us, to be in a world that is messy um, and violent and so different than you intended it to be, but that you are actively um, restoring it. And so I thank you for that. I thank you for um, our role in that. I thank you that you delight to work with us, that you... um, yeah, that you are a God who wants to partner to um, do the work of restoration as a team. And um, yeah, I just lift up this time, God, even as we acknowledge together as a community um, the sacrifice that it takes to fix something that's broken, um, your sacrifice on the cross, that you would just be in that, that you would, um, that your spirit fill this room, that we would just experience your presence super tangibly. And um, yeah, we just love you so much and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.